0: Good morning, everyone. Good seeing you all. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are glad that you are here as our guest. Uh, let me encourage you to stay around a little bit after services and let us get to uh, meet you. And certainly I probably haven't got to meet you. And if not, then I'd like that opportunity just to say hi and exchange names and maybe at least facial recognition. So glad to have you with us. For those of you who are on line, we're thankful that you're here with us as well. So I was thinking about uh, what Larry was saying in terms of... Uh, Corky uh, having her 90th birthday. And so I was over there talking to her, I says, man, 90 years, that's a good long while. And she goes, well, and maybe you'll live to be somewhere around that. And I says, I don't think so. Not uh, I me. Mean, in fact, uh, last summer, we took my my mother's ashes down to Clayton, Oklahoma, where my dad is buried and arrested. And we put her beside uh, him. And as we were there, we began to walk around inside the graveyard Now, my dad. He had eight brother, had uh, seven brothers and a sister. So there were nine in his family. And, of course, my other grandparents are buried there as well. And so all the Sutton boys are buried in that, that Clayton Cemetery as well as the Moore side of the family. And and I thought, well, listen, there's one thing for sure is all those guys died, which means I'm going to be next. So doubt I'll make it to 90, but maybe somewhere around that, that line. Just life itself is good, and so I'm going to try to use every day up as much as possible for the good of things. So... Um, Trying to find this little doohickey here. So it's good to see all of you uh, this morning. As you recall, um, and this is for those who are in the uh, part of the widowhood uh, Uh, ministry that we're beginning here uh, next Saturday afternoon and so let me encourage you to be a part of that if you're planning on doing it please RSVP to Lori so that we can make sure that the right amount of food is catered so be thinking about that well you recall at the end of last year the last week of the year I shared with you a lesson on God's call to commitment that God has always called his people to a higher level of dedication and, and loyalty to him And we looked at Exodus, the 19th chapter, and we in particular at verse five, where God says, if you hear my voice and keep my commandment, then you will be to me a valuable people. You'll be a peculiar people, a peculiar possession chosen from all the peoples of the world. I have chosen you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What God was saying is that, listen, you need to hear what I have to say to you and in an exchange for that, that I'm going to bless you as a, a people. And then last week, I talked to you about uh, a call to faithfulness, that there is a commitment that is there as, as well. And we looked at Exodus, the ninth chapter, once again, verses 9 through 15. And in that section of scripture, God has called the children of Israel to the foot of uh, Mount Sinai, or the mountain of, of God. And he has said to Moses, tell to sanctify themselves for three days. Tell them to wash their clothes and not to have any sexual relationship with one another. I'm going to meet them at the mountain. So set yourselves apart for this task. Dedicate yourself to the time when we're going to meet at the mountain. God also said, but I'm going to place some boundaries around the mountain as well to limit you in terms of how close you can come to this mountain because the mountain which you are beginning to approach is a holy place. It's holy ground. So he set this boundary and he has said to them, do not cross the boundary because if you cross the boundary, There's going to be a severe penalty, and he lays it on them that it says if anyone crossed the boundary, you're to shoot them with arrows or you're to to kill them with stones, but they're not allowed to do that. And we made the connection that God has always placed boundaries, whether it's in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. In the New Testament, God has boundaries for how we are to live our, our lives before him. There are things that you don't do. There are places that you don't go. There are things that you do not say. Which amounts to one thing, and that is rules. God has always had rules. God is a God of rules, if you will. So let me ask you, how many of you like rules? Well, the truth is, is most people don't like rules. And yet this morning's lesson is God's commitment, or our commitment, toward God's rules, Rules are something that just makes you feel uncomfortable. Just the title itself, and when I wrote the title itself, I thought to myself, it's going to make people feel uncomfortable. It makes me feel uncomfortable when someone starts telling me that there are rules, that there are regulations, that there are ordinances, that there are, are precepts, that God expects of that. As that makes us just feel just a little funny in, inside. So I thought about this teacher who had hurt his back. He hurt his back, and the result was he had they put a plaster uh, cast on him from his waist up to his right under his armpits. But you couldn't really see it. He could wear a shirt over it; you couldn't see it at all. And school was going to start, and so on the first day of school, he was assigned to one of the most toughest group of students in the school itself. And so as he walked very confidently into a very rowdy class, he walks over to a window and he opens up the window. He goes and sits down at his desk and begins just to prepare a few things when a strong breeze comes in and blows his tie around. So he reaches into his desk for all the students to see and he pulls out a stapler. And he takes a stapler and he staples his tie to his chest. That term, he had no problems with discipline in his class. (laughs) You see, there is something about this action that this teacher did that really got the attention of his class. They were listening to what he had to say because what he was saying by stapling his tie to his chest was this. You guys may think you're tough, but I'm a lot tougher when it comes to life and the things of life. So we come again to the mountain of God or Mount Sinai over in Exodus, the 19th chapter. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 25 this morning. So if you'll open your Bibles to that section of scripture, if you're using an electronic device like a smartphone or an iPad, then open your Bibles to that section. When I say open, I'm not saying open it to Facebook, not saying open it up to the Internet or to check out your your bank account, or I'm talking about opening it up to your Bible, so we can concentrate on what God has to say to us here. So God is going to say some things here. Listen to what he, what Moses pins here, beginning in verse 16. This is after three days; they've consecrated themselves, they've washed themselves, and now they're at the mountain. Stand behind the boundaries. So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there was thunder and lightning and flashes and thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and he stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord had descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently, When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called to Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So here you have this huge display. This is God's display of stapling his tie to his chest, telling the children of Israel— You may feel as though you have accomplished a lot by leaving uh, Egypt and coming to this place here. You may feel fairly independent. You may think that you're pretty tough people, that you've been camping for over 50 days here in this wilderness. But you need to know that there's someone much tougher than you are. So God gives this huge display before him. And so I got to think to myself, why in the world would God use such a, a shock and awe display on these people that he's wanting to come into this close relationship with? Why would he uh, do that? Because, listen, they are afraid of what they're saying. Even in Hebrews, it records that Moses, when he saw what was going on, that he was terrified and that he trembled with fear. All the people are trembling with fear. This is something incredible that is happening. This is a great display of, of power that is there. So he is himself even terrified at this thing here. So why would he do that? And the answer is that God is getting ready to hand down to them the rules of life for his people. He's going to give them in the chapter of the 20 verses 1 and following. He's going to give them the foundation of the law. The moral principle of the law, the better of what the law was about in the Ten Commandments, and then he's going to give them 602 other commandments or rules that they're supposed to live by. Now, like I said at the very beginning, people are funny about rules, people don't like rules, it makes them itchy. It makes them kind of just feel uncomfortable. In fact, people prefer guidelines or they prefer, you know, items to be, you know, flexible or to be malleable. They don't want them to be something that are absolute and firm without any kind of movement or flexibility in them whatsoever. And yet God comes down up on this mountain and he does this great display because he's getting ready to hand down the law or to hand down his rules. Years ago, it hasn't been all that long ago, we went through a time in our country, and I believe we still are going through it, where there's a culture war that's going on. And some years back, almost 20 years back, so there was a lot of movement in terms of, you know, removing the Ten Commandments out of the public squares or out of the public places, out, or, out of government buildings, out of classrooms, out of schools. And so that became a wave that went across the United States, and it happened even here in, in Boise. Mayor Beter and then council, uh, the city council, they decided to remove the Ten Commandments monument, monument out of Julia Davis Park. They didn't say, we're just going to get rid of that thing. They sold it to St. Michael's Episcopal Church for like 50 bucks, and they put it on the side of their building, covered up in vin- vines now and so forth, right across from the state house, but they decided to remove it out of there. Why did they do that? Well, because one of the cultural movement that was going across in a wave across the United States, but also there was a fellow by the name of Fred Phelps, who was a part of the Westboro Baptist Church, a very extreme activist group. And Fred Phelps, he wanted to make a point and he wanted to put up a monument that was anti-gay alongside the Ten Commandments. And rather than the city council and mayor fighting that off, fighting Phelps off, they decided, let's just remove it all out of the park. And so there went the Ten Commandments. But it didn't happen there. It was happening, like I said, all across the nation where they were moving these things out of government buildings, out of uh, city parks and all those kinds of things. Well, in 2009, the Supreme Court of the United States, they handed down a ruling that the Ten Commandments can be displayed in the public square or into city parks. But they also said uh, that that you could not display it in government buildings or in schoolhouses or in public schools or classrooms and so all across the nations you know the 10 commandments are being stripped away from the country they're taking them down the question that came to my mind as all this was happening i know that i'm a new testament christian okay i know that the law was nailed to the cross but there's something about the 10 commandments that is a timeless kind of thing because not only do you find it in the old testament you find them repeated in the new testament other than keeping the sabbath and in terms of keeping the sabbath we just simply replaced it with the assembling on the first day of the week but they're all there but they become matters of the heart which means it's something that should be written not on tablets of stone but on the tablets of the human heart which means they become very personal to us So why would our country, why would we decide to remove the Ten Commandments out of public schools or government buildings or federal buildings? Why would they do that? Well, there's some reasons for that. The Supreme Court ruled that having the commandments on the wall may induce a student to read, to meditate upon, or to actually obey what is written there. I mean, think about that for a second. We don't want them to feel that they have to be obedient to it. Laws like thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. You should honor your father and your mother. You should not commit ad- adultery. Those are also bad laws or bad things that we don't want our children to meditate upon and to, and to obey. That's pretty scary stuff when you think, uh, uh, think uh, about it. So, for years, there's been this kind of a systematic, systematic movement to remove the Ten Commandments out of a national consciousness. I would submit to you that it's not about removing Ten Commandments. It's about moving God out of the way because God interferes in our lives in so many ways when it comes down to the rules. So, why did they do it? Because God's rules are absolute, God's rules are not negotiable. God's rules are not something that you get to vote on. They're something that are written on stone. Someone has said this. You notice that the Deuteronomy was not written on metal. Or they written written on, on clay or on earth. And that's because metal can be melted away. Clay can be molded, but it's written on stone. The only way thing you do about stone is you can break them. You can break the stone. You can break the commandments, but you cannot alter them, which is really when you talk about it in terms of the United States and you talk about who we are as uh, Americans, Americans really don't see the Ten Commandments as something that is written in, in stone. In fact, in a USA uh, uh, Today poll, they said that 60% of Americans cannot name five of the Ten Commandments. 60%. Which is interesting when you think about in comparison to the things that we do know about. For instance, 74% of Americans can name all three stooges. There is Mo, There is Larry. There is, see, you're one of those 74% and you would really go down if you say well what's the fourth guy champ see so you're really doing really good see 35 percent of Americans can call all six names of the Brady Bunch that was a that was a TV show clear back in the 80's that's our 70's okay so it's even that's even worse when you think about it because my kids were watching I guess the reruns in the 80's like every night and I was like oh no not another Brady Bunch thing you know but they were there everywhere and that's been what I mean, that's been 30, 50 years, almost 50 years ago. But people can still call all those names. We're not going to do that exercise. 25% of Americans name all seven ingredients of a Big Mac. But only 14% can name all 10 commandments. That's a little scary, at least to me. Because there's some important things that are written therein in those commandments, which ironically is funny because in America, 78% of Americans believe that the Ten Commandments should be put on public displays. They believe that it should be that way. And so the greatest tragedy is not that the Ten Commandments are taken out of the public schools or the courtrooms or out of government buildings. To me, the tragedies that they're disappearing from the minds and the hearts and the lives of most Americans. Which means not just the commandments are disappearing, but God himself is being jettisoned for a secular way of looking at life itself. You see, there is something about the permanence of God's rule that offends people. Well, why is that? Well, I think it offends them because it calls people out on their sin. It tells people, here are sins that you are practicing that you should not be practicing. There's a way that you should be living life that you're not living Uh, It offends them because they want to make their own rules. And I think they want to make their own rules because it salves their conscience. And I think that people prefer to be their own gods. They want to determine what is right and what is wrong. And if you've just lived life for any time, at least for my life, I can look over since I've been a Christian for 49 years and look how much our society has moved how much it has shifted when it comes down to morality and a, a number of other subjects. It's shifted so much in a, in a fairly short period of time, but it's rapidly been cut away at the very foundations of who we are so that's what God is doing when he comes down on this mountain. God is coming down on this mountain telling this people, listen, it doesn't work that you want to have your own rules. Doing your own thing, your own way, to determine what's right and wrong, good and bad, moral and immoral is not going to work for you. And so what he is saying to them is that, listen, I am God and you are not. You don't get to make the the rules. If you want to have my blessings in life, then you have to come to grips with the one who is going to call the rules because it's not given up for debate you don't get to negotiate you don't get to uh, to vote you don't get to choose which parts you like and which parts you don't like And that rubs people. It rubs people all the way back then, and I would submit to you that it's rubbed people all the way throughout history and certainly does rub us even today. And what is sometimes even scary is it does, it rubs us when it comes to even being in the church and being in Christians, that people are talking about rules. I know, listen, I know that when Christ came, grace became huge, that we're all saved by grace uh, through faith. I I understand that, okay? But God also has rules that he expects us to live by as christians so in exodus the 19th chapter verses 21 through 25 that i didn't read but we're going to read now listen to what's going on here remember moses has been called up to the mountain then the lord spoke to moses he's going up the mountain now he's telling moses go down warn the people so that they do not break through to the lord to gaze and many of them perish Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves or else the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you warned us saying, set bounds about the mountains and consecrate it.' Then the Lord said to him, go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through and come to the Lord or he will break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and he told them. So what did God tell these people? He gave them one rule. The one rule was don't cross the boundary. And if you do, you'll get shot with arrows or you're going to get stoned. But they have collectively come to a consensus as a people. Over a million of them have come to a consensus that says, we're going to cross the boundaries. And we're not going to shoot or stone anyone. We're going to cross the boundaries. So Moses is going up the mountain and then God says, no, you need to go back down there. And Tell them what I told them about not crossing that boundary Because if they do I'm going to break out against them and there's going to be severe consequences for doing so So here is a people who's been given one rule and now they've decided to change the rule and To go up to the mountain regardless and God has to tell Moses tell them Don't do it. That's one line that you do not want to cross I want you to know that there is a history of breaking the rules. We have a great uh, video series that we use for reaching out to souls. Originally, it was for a new conference class, but it's the Joel Miller um, CD series or video series. It's in CDs. We have them. In lesson number five, which is called the history of the church, there they go down through a series where they talk about all the times that God's people have broken the rules. How they'll stay with God for a while, but then they decide to go their own way, to do their own thing, and think that they have no consequences of that. The very first example they give is Adam and Eve. You all know the story. Adam and Eve were, was given what? One rule. You can eat from. I mean, they live in a paradise. Anything that they want is there. And He says, "There's only one rule." You can eat from any tree in the garden, but the one that's at the center of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good need, you cannot partake of its fruit. And they decided to break the rule and to do their own thing, and they partook of it, and there were severe consequences. They were kicked out of paradise. The world became tougher to live in. Sin entered into the world, and not only that, but death itself. Then we come to Mount Sinai, in Mount Sinai, later on, we're going to see God's going to give the law to the people. And while Moses is up there for 40 days and 40 nights, what are the children of Israel doing at the foot of the mountain? They have made a, a calf made of gold, and they are worshiping it as God now. And they're doing a lot of other things. In fact, they break almost all the, a good many of the commandments that God has given Moses up on the mountain. They've already broken to the point when Moses comes down. He is so angry, he breaks those commandments and then has to give it, go up there and get them all over again and come back with them all over again. But here they have, I mean, you're talking 40 days, and they're breaking all kinds of rules, doing their own thing, and suffering the consequences of it, by the way. Forty years later, they are getting ready to go into the promised land. Now, a generation of them didn't go into the promised land because God says, go into the promised land. It's a land filled with milk and honey. They break their rules, refuse to go. That generation dies in the desert and are buried there, a new generation walks in and God says to them, I'm giving you a land filled with milk and honey. The cisterns for water are already dug. The vineyards and the orchards are already planted and producing fruit. Houses are already there. Cities are already there. You don't have to do anything. You go in and you occupy those things. I'm giving those things to you, but don't forget who gave them to you. And don't forget about me. What do they do? Doesn't take them very long, and they're going in their own direction once again. To the point that they're worshiping the idols of the lands in which they live. The Canaanites, the the Moabites, they're worshiping Molech. You can't see this picture very well behind me, but that's Molech. And they're offering their children as a burnt sacrifice to Molech. That's what they're doing. They're worshiping another god. And then eventually they'll repent and come back to God. And then off they go again, going their own way own way so god sends his son down surely they would accept his son but what do they, they reject him as being the messiah still do today they reject him as being the savior of the world on and on and on it goes over again and again and again god's people seem to always go in their own direction there just seems to be something in our mental maybe our spiritual dna that just seems to bend and to warp our response to god's rules and tempt us to think that we can do our own thing that we can make our own rules and not experience the consequences of it learn the rules the world says break the rules make up new rules break the new rules that is so true of human beings In a lot of ways, unless we make a commitment. And that commitment, that loyalty is to God and his word and the rules that he has handed down to us. There are examples of God's rules and men tending to break them. We usually tend to break them in like three uh, different areas. One of the areas that we break is people tend to do this in reference to there being only one God. The first three commandments and the ten commandments have to do with God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make any god of a graven image. And he just lays them out there. You should not take the Lord's name in vain. There was just one God, but that's not how the society sees it. The Supreme Court came out and said these words. To be constitutional, the Ten Commandments cannot be posted in isolation. They can only be displayed along with other sets of religious laws in order to meet the first criteria. They would have to be accompanied with secular laws to meet the second criteria. They would have to be part of the cultural display. And they give an example of what that display would look like. Three religious leaders are shown. The Jewish patriarch, Moses, holding the Ten Commandments. Confucius is shown representing Confucianism. Muhammad appears representing Islam and Sharia law, but you just can't leave it at that You got to have the secular people in there as well So there are four secular leaders that are shown Caesar Augustus the Roman Emperor William Blackstone a famous legal expert from uh, from Britain Napoleon Bonaparte, leader of France John Marshall Chief Justice of the Supreme Court Which I think that Chief Justice John Marshall would turn over in his grave if he has seen what we have done with the Constitution today. Okay, I'm getting into politics and that's opinion kind of stuff. But, but you see what I'm saying here? Justice Stevens has stated that the placement of all of these historic figures together on the frizz uh, signals a respect for great lawgivers and not great proselytizers. So what's the sum of all that? Well, that there are many gods, many religious leaders and secular leaders, many rules. You get to take your pick. You are Americans. But you first and foremost in this room are Christians. And as Christians, we live by a higher commitment, a higher loyalty and a higher law than anything that has been handed down from the highest court in the land or any court for that matter. We have forgotten that Washington said, it's impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. That's what he said. Wise words. Men tend to change the rules when it comes to being there's one God. There's only one God. Number two, men tend to break the rules in matters of morality. Both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God has established a moral uh, uh, conduct a moral code of conduct in the old testament exodus 20 verse 14 the seventh commandment thou shalt not commit adultery exodus 20 verse 17 the 10th command thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife along with their donkey which means you can't covet other people's cars and houses but certainly not their their wives or verse 15 the eighth commandment you can't steal stuff you shouldn't be a thief is what it's saying there And of course, when you look over at first Corinthians, the sixth chapter, verses nine and 10, God talks about the things that are acceptable and unacceptable to him in the New Testament. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Remember what God has said to the children of Israel. He says, You'll be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Remember what God said to 1 Peter 2 and verse 9 to us as Christians? You are a royal priesthood. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. And you get to proclaim the praises of God because he has brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's who we are. And what he says here, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Those are rules. Those are boundaries that God has established. And it doesn't matter what people say. The, the world can say, you can commit adultery and fornicate all you want. You can covet after whatever you want. You can be the greatest thief for whatever you want, at least up to $900. But other than that, so you're free to do so many things. So society and secularism has so muddied the waters with political correctness and wokeness that people are confused about the most basic things. I'm talking about intelligent people. Are confused about basic things. How many of you have heard about a senator by the name of John Kennedy? John Kennedy, excuse me a moment here. John Kennedy is a senator for the state of Louisiana. He stands on the U.S. Judiciary Committee. And what he does in the Senate at this Judiciary Committee is they vet. Different kind of justices, whether federal justice or appellate justice or even justice to the Supreme Court, they go through this Judiciary Committee for confirmation. So the senators get to ask these guys a question. And so John Kennedy has a fellow who is an appellate uh, justice in California by the name of Gabriel Sanchez. Smart guy, Gabriel Sanchez. And he is put forward in John. Uh, Kennedy is going to ask him some questions and he begins the interview or the questions by saying to him, listen, uh, judge, I'm not going to ask you anything that has to do with precedences or with case law and the United States Supreme Court. Are you okay with that? And the guy says, yes. He says, okay. He says, because what I want is I want to know who you are. I want to know what you believe. What is truth? That's what I want to know about you. Okay. So he says, so I got three questions for you. Actually he had four, but I got some questions for you. The first one is this in, in your opinion. And he says, I'm not talking about case law in your opinion. When does life begin? And Mr. Sanchez, he says, well, you know, there's a lot of debate about that in our world. You know, and 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 Senator, I can't really answer that question what my personal opinion is about that because that might come before me in my court. And and Kennedy stopped and said, No, no, listen, I've already told you, I'm not talking about precedents, I'm not talking about court stuff or or the Supreme Court stuff. I'm asking you, what do you believe? When does life begin? And so again, he equivocates and he dances all over the state, You know, saying I can't do that because I'm on a judge and so forth and so. Kennedy asks him again the same question. And finally he asks him, he says, listen, when does life begin? Have you thought about that, judge? And he says, well, yes, I have. He goes, so what's your conclusion? Well, you know, that's debated, and this thing is going to come before the court. And, I, you know, and so finally Kennedy gives up on that question. But I want you to know God knows that. God has set the rule when life begins. It doesn't begin when a child comes out of its mother's wombs and takes its first breath. In Psalm 139, verse 13, David says that God has, he says, you have, God, you have known my inward parts. When I was being knitted together in my mother's womb, you knew me. Life begins there. That's where it begins. How could a guy that is that smart, other than because of political correctness or wokeness, or because he wants a job, that he can't answer a simple question when life begins. He asked him the second, biologically, judge, how many sexes are there? And again, he says, that's a hotly debated issue. And because I might come before my court, if I am so affirmed as a court in the court of appeals, I don't feel comfortable answering that question. So he says, well, okay, but listen, you took sex education, you know how many sexes are there? Now, this is gonna date me, but even back in 1967, I knew that. When they started sex education for the first time in North Glen, Colorado, and we had to do, you know, our gym class had to come together, girls and boys, and we were talking about the different kinds of cycles that were going on. And I remember our teacher saying, If any of you boys laugh when we start talking about administration, you guys are going to be in big trouble. Even then we knew. But give it now a bunch of years, and now we don't know anymore. This judge didn't know. He probably knows, but he wasn't going to answer it because he asked him that many questions question, but I want you to know something. God knows. Genesis 1 and verse 27. God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female. He created them, period. And so we get all over the place with that thing there. Then he asked him a question about racism. He asked him, he says, you know the judiciary, the country's judiciary, we are all systemically racist. Judge, is the appellate court in which you sit in California? Are you guys a bunch of racists, or is that court, that appellate court, is it systemically racist? That guy really starts to squiggle around now, because if he says yes we are, and then he doesn't get confirmed on the, you know, for the Ninth Circuit Court, then he's got to go back to that appellate thing, and now he's got to face all these other justices going to look at him saying, what were you doing, in a Senate committee telling everyone we're a bunch of racists. But if he doesn't, then he's got problems with the wokeness around them, with social equity and all those things. But God has spoken about racism. Even in the New Testament, Galatians 3 and verse twenty. there's neither Jew nor Greek. Those of us who have been baptized in Christ and clothed ourselves with Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. We know what we're supposed to be as Christians. We should not be racist. God doesn't look at the color pigmentation of a person's skin. He looks at souls. And that's how we need to look. Now, I know we're mostly a white congregation, okay, because of where we live, but if we lived in, in Oklahoma, it should still be that way. Or Texas, or wherever. Finally, he asks them this fourth question. He can't seem to get an answer out of them for the other three, so he asks them the fourth question. He asks him, what's your favorite color? And the just, without any coefficient. No dancing around. He definitively says, quickly, blue. And Senator Kenney says, well, that's really good. That's, that was pretty easy. Why is it that you can answer so quickly your favorite color, but you can't answer the most basic of questions up here? And you want me to affirm you as a judge when you don't even know your own mind? Now, he's a GOP guy, okay, and... Mr. Sanchez is a guy that was appointed by a Democratic president, so maybe there's some grind there. But nevertheless, those are just basic questions that anyone should know, but because of the world in which we live, where we've jettisoned God out of the way and the rules out of the way, we don't know who we are or what we are or what we're supposed to to be. And then it comes down to another thing that we tend to break, That's on the issues of salvation. We like to change the rules there as well. One of them is this. There are many gods and many roads. Well, Jesus settled that by saying, listen, there I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. There's only one road, and there's only way to the Father, which is one, and it's through me. So he is not pluralistic whatsoever when it comes down to religion and who God uh, is. And we tend to break it when it comes down to salvation. John tells us that man tries it in three different kinds of ways. He very succinctly, in one passage of Scripture in John 1 and verses 12 through 13, he says this. To all who receive Jesus, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born, born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So mankind tries to change up the rules how he can be saved. One is by natural descent, which means if you're born into a religious family, if you're born into a Christian family, your ticket might be punched. Now, in the Old Testament, there was some truth to that because if you were born a Jew, you automatically became a part of the covenant. There wasn't initiation rites. But in the New Testament, it's different than that. You can't can't get there on your parents' coattails or your grandparents' coattails. You have to get there with your own faith, and your own faith has to become your own faith to the point that you are born again, and that's what Jesus said. In order to come into a relationship, you must be born of the water and the Spirit. Human decision is the other one. If, I'm good, if my good outweighs the bad, then, and I'm a good person, then I deserve to go to heaven. But it doesn't work that way either, because when you look at Ephesians 2 and verse 8, it says we are saved by grace and not by works. OK, so there's something to that there. And so you can't just decide I'm just going to be a really good person and I'm going to do all the right things and I get to go to heaven. Well, it doesn't work that way. And by husband's will probably more true back then than it is today when there was a more matriarchal kind of, of system. But the idea was is that my as a husband, I can't say to my wife, you get to go to heaven because I say so. And my children, they get to go to heaven because I say so. And my grandparents get to go to heaven because they said I could go to heaven. You Can't do it that way. You have to be born. Again, probably the one where we have changed the rule the most is in what is called salvation prayer. It's more properly known as the sinner's prayer. I I put one up there so you can kind of see what one looks like. They come in lots of different ways, but they almost all say the same thing. Here's a salvation prayer. Here's a day that you walk up the aisle to the altar and you want to become a Christian. Here's what you're led in. Dear Lord Jesus, I know I am a sinner, and I ask for you forgiveness your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. Guide my life and help me to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. And, and you're a Christian. Like I said, it comes in all different kinds of ways. And I got to thinking to myself, okay, where in the Bible does it say that? Where in the Bible is there an example of a salvation prayer or a, a sinner's prayer? On the day of Pentecost, where was the sinner's prayer? The, the people in Samaria, when Philip preached the gospel to them and, and they became saved, where was the sinner's prayer? The Ethiopian eunuch, where was the sinner's prayer? The Philippian jailer, where was the sinner's prayer for he and his family living in her household? Where was the sinner's prayer the, in Acts, the 19th chapter? John's disciples, where was the sinner's prayer there? You know, Paul, you know, and his conversion. Where was the sinner's prayer there? Well, it, they're not there. So where did it come from well it's a fairly new innovation it's not much more than a couple hundred years old at the most well actually probably not 120 or 30 years old it became more vogue or popular some of the great awakenings had some nuances of it but as you move toward the latter part of the 19th century going into the early part of the 20th century a guy by the name of dwight moody credible speaker he was doing great revivals. He filled up Madison Square Garden. I mean, he had lots of people, and he would give altar calls, and, and people would come forward, and they were with a quandary: How do we bring people into Christ? How do we recognize a person coming into Christ? So they started a prayer room or a salvation prayer room where they would take a candidate and take him off to the room by one of his associates, and they would talk to him a little bit, and then they would lead him in a salvation prayer or a sinner's prayer. Billy Sunday was a professional baseball player. He hung up his cleats and became a gospel preacher. Super charismatic, a really great speaker, and he had great crowds of people, and he had people that come forward, so he trained his associates to lead people in the sinner's prayer. And Billy Graham, who was called the the America's preacher in the 60s, on forward until his death led great crusades, Where people came forward and he also trained his people and those who would receive people who came for the to the altar he trained them also how to lead them in that moment in the sinner's prayer but where do they get it well in fact it's one of the stable teachings of many of the evangelical churches today it's done every sunday across the country and on the other side of the pond but it's not there and I've done lots of Bible reading, but I can't find that sinner's prayer anywhere in the Scripture. It's just another example of changing the rules to suit ourselves. So what does the Bible say about salvation? Well, we know what Jesus commanded in Mark the 15th cha- 16th chapter verse 15 and 16. He says, Go and preach the gospel to all creation. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. One plus one equals two. Belief. for... Uh, plus, baptism equals salvation. Matthew recorded it this way, or wrote it this way in his gospel, in Matthew, the 28th chapter, in verse 19. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. How? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus said. What did Peter command? Well, we know what he commanded on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, in verse 37, he says, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. No mention of the sinner's prayer, and in verse 41, over 3,000 were baptized into Christ, just like Peter commanded them earlier. And we know that all examples of conversion stories in the book of Acts, that's the history of the early church, involves baptism. Whether you're talking about the day of Pentecost, or are you talking about those Samaritans were baptized. The Ethiopian eunuch was baptized. Here's water. what prevents me from being baptized. The Philippian jailer, Lydia and her household, the, the disciples of John Paul himself was told, why tarry to arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So when you talk about the rules, that God has placed some rules there, and for some reason, man just tends to want to bend them or to change them. Now, understand that I know that a person has to believe, and they have to hear and believe and repent, and they have to confess, and they have to be baptized, and then they have to walk faithfully the rest of their lives. Okay, so I know that. So I've cherry-picked the baptism part, okay? So you get what I'm going, what's going on here. So here you are back at the mountain. Okay, so I've taken us way away from the mountain. Now we're back at the mountain. So God comes down the mountain with a huge display, and his huge display is he's getting ready to impress upon them that I'm going to give some rules. It's important that you keep those rules. And that's what he does. So this is the last point. Only last 25 minutes. The last point is this, okay? What is God saying? He's saying that God is God and we are not. Let me repeat that. God is God and we are not. Now, when you say those words there, that, that upsets people because he gets to make the rules, okay? So some people say rules are bad things, but they're not. They're not bad things. So there's huge advantages to God setting the rules, and well, what are they? Well, one is, is if God sets the rules, then I know what he wants from me. I don't have to wonder what is right or, or what is wrong. I don't have to go to a preacher or to an elder or anyone else. I don't have to wait for the Supreme Court to lay down a decision of what is right and wrong. I can go to God, and God will tell me, here's what is right, here's what is wrong. And I can trust that, and there's comfort in that, because God has set the boundaries or the perimeters, and all I have to do is live within them. Here's the second thing. If we obey God's rules, I don't have anything to be afraid of. I have no regrets. I don't have to second-guess myself or look over my shoulder and see if God is going to get me. I don't have to live like that any longer. And if I violate the rules, God has showed me how to come back to him by confessing the fact that I broke a rule or I have sinned. And God's promise is that I'm faithful and righteous to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, Richard. That's good news that is laid out before me. So there's huge advantages that are there for us. So God is the God of rules. And when I think about that, I can't think of one Rule that he has established that's not in my best interest or your in best interest to those that he has created and those whom he loves. I can't think of one where it says, okay, God says do not commit adultery. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me because what if I do that? Well, now I've harmed my mate. I've harmed my family. I've harmed her family. I've harmed her friends and my friends. I've hurt my church family. There are, this thing has such a ripple effect just because I decided to go my own way and to do that You shouldn't steal things. Have you ever had anything stolen from you? You feel violated. It makes you angry It's a terrible feeling thou shalt not k- kill, kill people or murder people You know someone that's been murdered. you ever had a loved one murdered? You know how harmful and hurtful that is we have more murders now than we've ever had You know how, how much that how? How much suffering goes on because a person decides to do their own thing and make their own rule I could go on and on with this stuff you get the idea God makes rules for my interest and for your interest so we know where to go everyone who believes that Jesus is the cross has been born of God and everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. Unless you're willful. Unless you just want to go your own way and do your own thing. But let me tell you, if that's the direction you decide to go, well, then expect the consequences to come your way. You, You can't, listen, you can't, Lie down by a dog and not expect to get up, get up with some ticks or fleas. You can't hang out with skunks and not expect to smell like one. Okay, enough metaphors, but, but you get what I'm saying? I love you. I love you. I know that we're, we're saved by God's grace. I know that. But God has laid down the law, and he's a big God, and he can prove it. Let's be, let's be committed to him. Into his rules. Our lives will be better because of it. And if you haven't obeyed God's plan of salvation this morning that I laid out for you, then maybe you could do that this morning. Or if you're a Christian, maybe you violated those rules. Well, you know the way back now as well. Whatever your need is, once you come on, together we stand and sing and